You're listening to a sermon from Covenant Church. Hey, we're going to celebrate, exhort, and then we're going to preach. So let's just celebrate this. Uh, today we were praying before the services over here in our prayer room, which by the way is open to all of you after services. Come by and pray with us. And we were praying uh, with the volunteers and the staff that were preparing for the services this morning that are serving in some way. We had a brand new volunteer in there. We had 23 people in there, most of whom are volunteers running our sound, running our, uh, our online live stream, singing on stage, providing music. Can we just thank them for all the work that they do, for everything that they do? Celebrate that. Uh, a number of those are teenage volunteers. We're so grateful for all our volunteers. The truth is, I've said this before and I'll say it again, 90% of what happens at church would not happen if it was just up to the pastors. Like if it was just depending on the pastors, we just are only a few people. We can't get that much done. We're not even that smart all the time. And so we need these wonderful, talented people who make things happen. And we're so, so grateful for them. Okay. Exhortation. That was celebration. This is exhortation. Exhortation is this. Our church says frequently, and it's painted on our building and it's on our website, that we're building a community to reach a community. You ever heard that before? Yeah, for building community, reach a community. Hey, you can, you can celebrate, celebrate with Tony. Tony's celebrating that, celebrate that. That's what we're doing. That's good, that's good news. Here's the exhortation, let's do that. Let's build community, okay? What does it mean to build community? Well, the world that we live in and the lives that we've been uh, brought up in, just on the values of like what it means to be Western, modern, American, those values are usually very individualistic, Okay, and often very spontaneous or driven by our felt needs in a moment, uh, indulgent a lot of times. And so what often happens is we back away from anything that's a little too hard, like community in a church. We back away from some of the things that God has given us to strengthen us and grow us up in Jesus. And what I want to make sure you understand that you just heard our host say up here a few minutes ago is that the staff and the pastors, the elders of this church have been prayerfully thinking about how do we exhort this church to embrace everything God has for us as Christians, including salvation that comes by grace through faith, Jesus' command to obey him in baptism so that we can become communicant members of the church that take the Lord's Supper together in a real community where there's sharing and confession and prayer. That doesn't happen in all of its greatest manifestations in a room of four or 500. It usually will happen with this and in groups of four, five, six, seven, eight. So we're so thankful for those 60 plus people that have gotten training. We have been talking as a church about discipleship rhythms. What does it mean to learn from and imitate Jesus? And some of those threads are coming together today with the launch of new groups and a new preaching series. The series is called Meals with Jesus. Meals with Jesus. We're going to use a book to help guide these new groups that's called A Meal with Jesus by author Tim Chester. And I want you to just hear today and begin to pray over the topics that you're going to hear in preaching and that the groups that are doing this study are going to discuss in a small group setting, in a community setting, over the next seven weeks. You ready for this? Yeah, three of you are ready for this. The rest of you uh, need this. So let's see them. Today, we're going we're gonna to learn about grace from Luke 5. We're going to hear about community, enacted community from Luke 7, about hope, mission. Get this, this the one with the uh, little star there. 
we, in, we made up a new chapter to the book called Homecoming. Steve Huber's going to preach on Luke 15 that day. I've heard the prequel to that. You're not going to want to miss a sermon in the lead up to Easter. Trust me. We're going to talk about salvation, okay, uh, from Luke 22 on Palm Sunday. And we're going to talk about enacted promise. I think it fell off the slide, but enacted promise on Easter Sunday. And so here's the deal. You might not have heard about the groups yet, or you might have been kind of waiting in the sidelines. We've got books for you if you want books. If you're leading a group, they're free for you. They're in our lobby today at Next Steps. They're $10 until they're gone, which is better than you can get them online. We have 13 groups that today have room that start this week that are just ready for you to sign up. And all they really need is for you to feel the urge or the call of God to go to Next Steps. We even printed out a piece of paper today. So we have the online groups finder. We made it better so you can see the 13 groups. We printed a piece of paper that has the 13 groups. And you just look at that, find one that's on the day or or night that you're looking for and write to that leader and give it a try. Does that make sense? This is the exhortation. Let's do these things together. Let's not be waiting our whole life for God to come to us with some spoken message in our brain. Let's hear the word from scripture and let's hear the exhortation of the church. Let's be in community. Let's get baptized. Let's become members of God's church. By his help, we'll do these things well and faithfully. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and then, and then we'll do the preaching part. All right, let's pray. Lord God and Father, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Holy Spirit, who empowers and enables us, we come to you today knowing that we need community. For various reasons, we hold back. For various reasons, we have our schedules so full. Maybe we have some fears. Maybe we're just not quite there in faith yet. And we pray that you would erode these barriers with the gentle waves of your love until we all step into the fullness of what it means to be part of the body of Christ, his bride, the church, this holy temple that you're building to bring you glory and to heal us. We pray that you would not only do the work of that first great salvation in our lives, but continue to do the work of saving us from all of the ways that we've been trained, taught, and and developed and disformed by the world and by our own sin, we pray that you'd save us from those things and heal us. Bring us into the light and love of your family. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things, and together we say, amen, amen. Let's read from our text. We're going to read from Luke 5, 27 to 32, and you're welcome to read on the screen uh, silently or open a Bible and find it. I'll read this first reading from the NIV. Luke 5, 27 to 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, 
but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's talk about what happens in Jesus's meal with Levi, the tax collector. I want to provide today the meaning of the text and also the context, give you a little bit of information about what this meal means. I also am praying that from the beginning of hearing the text that God's already doing his work in your heart and mind, that this story is penetrating your imagination, that it's working its way into how you envision the world and think about grace. And so today, I'm going to give you five points in the sermon. Let me tell you the first four. They're not like my usual points. Point one is grace comes to dinner. Point two is grace brings all her friends to dinner. Point three is grace and her friends go way back. And point four is don't leave grace and her friends off of your Evite. So if you like to know what we're going to do, that's what we're going to do. The rest is a mystery. Not to me, to you. Are you ready? Grace comes to dinner. I want you to see the grace-filled and graceless interactions in the story we just read. So with the text, again, uh, on the screen in front of us uh, or on your Bibles in front of you, look for the grace-filled and graceless interactions. Here's what I see. Maybe you'll see some others. I see a grace-filled interaction when Jesus goes to a tax collector. By the way, they weren't well-liked. Some things haven't changed, though. They weren't well-liked for different reasons, though, than they are uh, disliked sometimes today. They were not only taking money from people, they often cheated, and they were considered traitors to their people because they were sending that money to Rome, who was this world superpower that was oppressing the people of Israel, and so nobody liked it when their countrymen and fellow Jews supported Rome in that way. Jesus goes to this man, tax collector Levi, and gives him an invitation that in their world and in their time had tons of meaning. He is a rabbi or a teacher, and he invites Levi to follow him, which, if you're new to reading the Bible, you'd be forgiven for not understanding this, is a really personal, warm, special, and a fairly unique invitation in their world. Not every person gets that kind of invitation from a rabbi. That's grace. We see another grace-filled interaction. Levi, in verse 29, throws a great banquet, or what it says, I love to call it a mega meal, because the word for great in Greek is mega. And what, he do, what it says in the text is he threw a mega dinner for Jesus, a feast for Jesus. This is grace from grace. Jesus gives a warm invite. The man throws a big feast. And who does he invite? Well, other tax collectors. That's maybe the only people that he thinks will come. <laughs> and all it says in, in Luke's version is others. There was others there. It doesn't tell us who the others were. Notice that. It says others. This is how Luke remembers the dinner. Here's a graceless interaction. The Pharisees and teachers of the law who were members of their sect complained to the disciples. This was a graceless moment, this complaint. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and, but they don't say others, they say sinners. Do you notice the difference? Luke invited his friends and others, including some Pharisees. All the Pharisees can see in the room is us and sinners. It's a graceless moment. 
Jesus answered them. Jesus answered them. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Sentences that are just full of grace. Grace is there for the others. Jesus is willing to be there with the others. I want you to notice that no one at the party, no one, will get away untreated by the great physician, Jesus. Jesus actually echoes the the phrase they use, sinners. But in this sense, yeah, they're sinners. And so are you sinners. Everybody who recognizes in front of God that they're a sinner needs the medicine of the doctor and is called to repentance. There's grace for everyone who can just admit that much. You see, the lyrics of a song that we're going to sing shortly say, we're invited to the table of his love. To be with Jesus at a meal is to be at a place where everyone is loved. That does not mean that everything about you is fully acceptable. It means that you're loved and that everyone who goes away from the dinner with Jesus will need to be treated by his medicine. We're invited to the table of his love. We're nourished by the grace he's given us. You see, these moments with Jesus are like food for a soul. They give hope and light and new meaning to a life. To people who were ostracized, they were very much not in community with each other, even though they were of the same nation, the same religion, and they lived geographically close to one another. They were not community. Jesus is going to give them the nourishing grace that they need to change that. Let's define grace for a moment, because this might be a new word or idea for some. Grace is an undeserved gift. Grace is an undeserved gift or doing for someone what they can't do for themselves. Grace is only an addition, but not by itself a subtraction. It's just a free gift. What kind of grace does Jesus give here? Well, time, a listening ear, he shares food, He even offers teaching that would enable everyone in the room to come to God, put some sins aside, repent, and be more whole. All of that is grace, an undeserved gift. Grace isn't the only thing that comes to dinner. Grace brings all her friends to dinner. I want to compare Luke's memory of the story to Matthew's memory. So let's put that on the screen. Matthew chapter 9, 9 through 13, tells the same story as what we just read in Luke, but Matthew remembers it a little differently. Why does he remember it a little differently? Well, Luke probably wasn't there. He gets the story by being a great researcher. He tells us that. And whose nickname is Levi. He is the host of the mega meal. The gospel author named Matthew was the tax collector repudiated by his countrymen to whose house Jesus goes. He remembers something that Luke might not have learned in his research because he was sitting there. He was at his house and he says this, almost everything's the same until verse 12. So just look at verse 12 at the bottom here. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Have we heard that already? Yes. 
But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Well, that's new, isn't it? For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Grace is going to be for the Pharisees too. And so is mercy. Matthew remembers it. Levi remembers that when Jesus answered the Pharisees, he said to them, he gave them a grace gift. Go and learn what this means. Here's something you guys need. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's from their Old Testament scriptures. Let's define mercy. Here's our definition of grace again. An undeserved gift, doing for someone what they can't do for themselves. Let's define mercy. Mercy is pardon or forbearance towards an offender. It's giving them time and space to get things right. It's not holding them accountable for all the consequences of their actions. That's mercy. Grace and mercy are partners in the work of redemption. And I, I want to ask you a question about these Pharisees. Why do you think that they're being so judgmental about the sinners at the party? What are they afraid of? You know, I know what it means to be afraid. I think you guys know what it means to be afraid. I remember one of the earliest stories in our family about Josh Bundy being afraid was when my dad at a party that our family threw, let me sit in the living room with him and watch about 10 minutes of the movie Alien. In case you don't know, there's a scene in that movie where a, a person who has had an alien embryo like implanted in their chest, the chest blows open like, and this alien goes out of the, I saw it. I was like four. My mom was really, really, how many reallys could I fit in a sermon? She was really mad at my dad. I woke up for nights, um, you know, for why am I think there's something in my chest? Why do people's chest blow open and all this? And she's like, okay, that doesn't really happen. That's not how it works. Consider my young angst when months later she was pregnant, very visibly pregnant. <laughs> We know what it means to be afraid from the time we're children on up. What, we, what often happens is we don't, we're not as graceful in admitting it. We're not, we often don't pay attention to it as we get older. And there's a whole lot of things we're afraid of. And, they all, and everything we're afraid of impacts the choices we make and how we treat people. And so I want to know, what are these Pharisees afraid of? What do they think is going to happen if at this beautiful dinner, this lovely dinner, they don't point out in that moment how sinful some of the others are. What do they think is going to happen? Are they trying to get points with Jesus? Like, what is it? And I want to tell you a little bit about what I believe it is. I also want you to hear this. You might think that the application of the sermon comes at the end. Today, you'd be wrong. If you want application, if you want the resources of Jesus for your life, for your Lenten time, like right now is Lent, the season of fasting and repentance and self-examination as we lead up to Easter, we're all trying to give up some foods and some other activities. We're all trying to spend some time in prayer, look at ourselves and see what God has to say. You want to apply some of Jesus's resources to your life. Listen to the following questions. What are they afraid of? Everyone has an idea of what it means to be safe or saved. Just replace the religious sounding word saved with safe for a minute. Everyone has an idea of what it means to be safe. You've got those ideas about nutrition, 
You have them about economics. You have them about politics. You have them about warfare. You have them about relationships. You have them about how you fight or how you make up. Everybody has a concept of what it means to be safe. And for these Pharisees, we have really good reason to believe that what they were after, what they thought would be safe was for national liberation, throw Rome off, be a free independent nation to purify the temple and have a holy temple. They thought God will come to us again if our nation is pure. We'll throw off the Romans with God's help if our nation is pure. Well, what do you need to have a pure nation? You need pure individuals. You need pure people. And so in the mind of the Pharisees growing now for a couple of hundred years has been this back to the Bible movement that in many ways was really lovely and beautiful. But what happened was probably some of these fears got so entwined with it that they thought everybody needed to be like as pure as priests. And they tried to apply what was in the Old Testament rules for just priests to everybody. And they held everybody to that standard, an exacting standard, because that's how we'll get the nation pure. And if we get the nation pure, God will come to our nation. And if that happens, we'll be safe. Maybe you can think of some parallels in your life. What is it that you're afraid of? How about this? What do you complain about? What is it that you complain about other people in your community or at your party or in your country? What do you complain about? Who do you ostracize? These are the kind of self-examination thoughts that are in keeping with a Lenten season. God, who have I lost a vision that they could also get your grace and your mercy? Is this making any sense? And so let's work through the thought experiment. What do we complain about? What are we afraid of? Who do we criticize? What happens to me when I fail my own expectations? How do I think about myself? Shame and guilt, beating myself up. Can this work to achieve the safety for me that I think I need? Does it ever work? It, has it made me feel safe yet? And the answer is, is going to be, unless, you're, unless your scheme for that is the grace of Jesus, the answer is going to be no. Eventually, somewhere it breaks down. I can't keep up. They can't keep up. We all get sick and die anyways. Wars still happen. Disease still comes. Listen again to the words of this song. We're invited to the table of his love, nourished by the grace he's given us, broken and lonely. And don't we all have some of that? It also says this, the song says, the greatest to the least. And notice that Matthew and Jesus both, they're like, hey, we've got the tax collectors and the others. We've also got the Pharisees. We've got these religious elites. Everybody's at the table. Jesus has something for everybody. We need grace. We need her friend, mercy. We need all of her friends. Get this, Grace and her friends, they've been doing this for a long time. They go way back. They go way back. What you might not know, or you might know, is that when Jesus says, go and learn what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, he's quoting from a prophet of Israel that lived 800 years before. Can you imagine? I mean, you can imagine this. You're at a dinner, you're at a nice party, and somebody starts quoting medieval English literature, right? But this is like the hope of their nation. They pray these prayers. They recite these things. He quotes from the prophet Hosea. Hosea lived in, in the 8th century before Jesus. There was two kingdoms of Israel. There was a southern and a northern kingdom. They had split politically. The northern kingdom was going away from God's teachings at like light speed. And they were about to be conquered by the nation of Syria and taken into captivity to never be seen again. 
Hosea spends probably 70 years preaching to the Northern Kingdom, calling them to repentance. Can you imagine that? 70 years. Wow. I can't imagine that. And what's one of the most common words that Hosea uses in all his preaching? Well, I want you to say it with me. It's a Hebrew word, chesed. Chesed. Get? Okay, non-cap people. You got to think furball with me for a second. Right? Chesed. Try it out. Everybody try it. Chesed. Okay. It's an important word. Also, I just wanted to make you do that. Look at these verses from Hosea. Hosea in chapter 6 says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Can you see that's what Jesus was quoting? That's the quote right there. Okay, here's, here's the funny thing. Luke, who wrote a gospel, Mark and John, who wrote gospels, they had forgotten or just didn't know about this little interaction with the Pharisees. Levi remembered it. It happened at his party. Okay, and it was connected to a prophet from their people, and he remembered it. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, I want to show you something. Look at the ESV of this. This is actually a better translation of this verse. I desire steadfast love. And you say to me, mercy and steadfast love don't sound like the same thing. Well, it's because the word that they're trying to translate here is the word chesed. And what happened in the top is the NIV went with a translation that comes from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that was made when the Jews were speaking more Greek. And they were like, what's a good word for this? They go with this Greek word that means mercy. Chesed means mercy and love and faithfulness. It means all those things. The ESV just went with the more kind of close to what the ancient Israelites would have meant by this word, a steadfast love. Okay, why is this so important? Because of this. In general, chesed means something like this. It means strength, it means steadfastness, and it means love, like the emotional component. And if you take any one part of that three-legged stool without the rest, you don't have chesed. If you got love, it can just be like, simpering and sweet and cloying and clingy, okay? It can be sentimentalized. If you can have strength or steadfastness without any love, without any compassion, kindness, mercy, or grace, which is what a lot of people unfortunately end up giving like to their spouse or their children over decades, right? Is I'm always here for you. I'm just not going to like show up with the emotional compassion and gentleness. And to have chesed, you actually need both. You need all three parts of this. So look at the way Hosea uses this throughout, throughout his um, years, his 70 years of preaching. We've got Hosea 2.19, where he says, this is God speaking, I'll betroth you to me forever, Israel. I'll betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love, that's the word chesed, and in mercy. I'm going to give you both my passion and my steadfastness, Okay. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1, Hear the word of the Lord, children of Israel. The Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness. There's no chesed. There's no knowledge of God in the land. What shall I do with you, Ephraim? That's the northern, that's the poetic name for northern Israel. What shall I do with you, Judah? That's the southern country. Your love is like a morning cloud. Your chesed is like the dew that goes early away. That's what God says to them. What you call loving faithfulness evaporates by lunchtime. I want you to learn the tools and resources that will, that will get so deeply into your heart and mind that your fears won't be the strongest grip on your heart anymore, but the love of God will be. He goes on. 
Uh, Here's the verse that Jesus quoted in chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. I'll just read two more. Also, Hosea says, Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap chesed. Break up your fallow ground. It's time to seek the Lord. He may come and rain righteousness on you. He says this, So you, by the help of your God, return. That means to repent, return back to God. Hold fast to chesed and justice. Wait continually for your God. Can you see that throughout this book, he keeps returning to this idea because God is offering it. The people don't get it. What is Jesus doing by invoking this I desire mercy, not sacrifice? He's reminding Pharisees, the elite at the dinner, that God desires committed, loyal, loving actions, even towards those with whom you disagree. He's showing them grace and mercy and chesed all at this dinner. It's as if God, it's as if God said this. This isn't a quote from scripture. This is a Josh Bundy summary. This could be faulty, but I think it's close. It's as if God said this, I don't love outward religious observance that's unaccompanied by loyalty from the heart. I don't want you to preach purity to the people if you don't love the people. It's as if God said, I don't want your worship if you don't want to know me. I could add to that. Again, the lyrics of the song, we're going to sing, come, taste, and see just how good is the faithfulness of God. This is what Jesus is offering to the Pharisees. When you give purity to other people in the gospel, it's not a bitter pill. It's a good, full of flavor dish to the light and like to turn and repent to God when you know his steadfast love is a beautiful thing. So for us, you and me, let's imitate Jesus in this. Let's not leave Grace and her friends off of our evite. Okay. We got to keep thinking about these things. We've got to think about these resources. We've got to pray about them and we've got to encourage each other in them. Why? Look at what happens if we don't. You remember Levi, Matthew, thrower of the mega meal? You haven't forgotten about him yet, have you? A few chapters later, he tells this story. Again, he tells it in a way that none of the other gospel authors gave us this much detail. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. In case you don't know, in Jewish Sabbath, it could be punishable by up to death for harvesting on Sabbath or Saturday, which was a holy day of rest and worship. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, now they've caught Jesus, right? Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. See, we knew that what would happen is the impurity of the sinners, it would work its way into you and your followers. Look, we caught you. He answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? This is from the Old Testament. He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Jesus gives a story example of when David, a man that God calls a man after my own heart, even though he sinned in many ways, some of them really awful ways. God says, this is a man after my own heart. And you know what God didn't call a sin was eating that bread, even though technically it was against the law. He says, haven't you read the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet they're innocent? What he's referring to is that on Sabbath Saturdays, they would still offer sacrifices, which was work. And they weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. 
So Jesus says this, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Do you remember what they think they need to purify? Do you remember what all their hopes are set on? Get the people right, get the nation right, get Rome off our backs, get the temple purified. God will come back and answer us. Something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Jesus says, I showed you at the meal, remember at the dinner, I gave you a chance. Go and study this, learn this. What does this mean? What is chesed? If only you had done it. If only you had learned what it meant. If only you'd prayed about it and reflected on it. He says, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus knows that by trying to save themselves, hoping in the nation and the temple and individual purity, the Pharisees are going to end up condemning the wrong people, including their savior. Generally, they're going to make a mess of things. And so will we. He's also made a plan to slingshot their betrayal into a brand new sharing of grace and mercy and chesed through the cross on which he dies. He's going to share it with the whole world, the tax collectors, the sinners, the Pharisees, the Americans, everybody. Because of this last thing he says, this is the secret point five, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean? It means that in a mystery, he's the one that wrote scripture before we ever read it. He's the eternal son of God. It means that Jesus is Lord of Sabbath. Sabbath was their Saturdays. He's Lord of Saturday. Do you know what that's going to mean a few weeks after this? That Jesus, body cold, no more breathing, stained in blood, skin torn open, Maybe still even, well, certainly still the holes in his hands and his feet, even though he's wrapped up in linen that's like clung to his body, thrown in a tomb, stone closed over it, in the dark, everything's still. The stillest Sabbath that ever there was. And he says, guess who's Lord of Saturday? Guess who's Lord of the stillness of the grave? He's greater than the temple, the friend of sinners. He gets that nickname for meals like this. He's the host of the feast that will happen in the kingdom of God, where he will have his friends grace and mercy and chesed, steadfast love, serving at the table. Jesus says to them, if only you had known, and he offers it to you and me too. Would you learn from me? Would you learn from me? Would you imitate me? Let's pray. God and Father, we're thankful that we're invited to the table of your love. We pray that we would learn what this means for people that we disagree with, don't like, for people that our imagination is so short that they could never come to God. We pray that our imagination about the table of your love would also be for us, even though we may have come to believe we're beyond help and beyond hope. We pray that you would help us to do some self-examination, to see how you would apply the medicine to my heart and how we can be distributors of your grace to those that we're in community with. We pray that we'd be nourished by the grace you've given us. We pray that in our time and in our church, it would be for the broken and for the lonely, for the greatest and the least. We pray that in our time, and in our church, 
that everyone would be invited to come, find their name, and take their seat. In the most holy name of the Son of God, we pray. We ask for your help and your salvation. There'll be some times this week that we don't eat food and we'll just think about this, God. We pray you'd strengthen us for that now. There's going to be some people baptized soon. There's going to be others that will begin uh, to take communion soon after their baptism. There'll be new members at church soon. We pray that for them and for everybody who's not yet ready, that they'd come and that they take their seat. We pray that Grace and all her friends would be the resources that we would lean on when we're afraid. We love you, God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Together we say, Thanks for listening. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or in person on Sundays at 9 and 1045 a.m. Hope to see you there.